You're listening to the Variety Sports Network, your home for the best sports podcasters and live shows. College basketball may be over, but the NBA is just about to heat up. The Jazz only have four games left in the season. They're currently 36 and 42 and just one and a half games out of the play-in race. Plus, could the quarterback competition up on the hill end in more position changes? And for our draft segment this week, we will be drafting our top favorite office characters. That's all coming up right now on The Thatcher Effect. Five, four, three, two. You're listening to The Thatcher Effect with your hosts, Nate Thatcher and Richie Osler. All right, guys, here are today's Thatcher Effect headlines. As always, Richie, take us away. All right, the Jazz are still sitting at 12th in the West with just four games left. Um, With Walker Kessler out the rest of the season and concussion protocols, Laurie Markkinen's status remaining unsteady and other team injuries, it looks like the Jazz are in a tank race with the Dallas Mavericks right now. Utah football spring ball is still ongoing, but there have been some more changes for the staff and the team. Cornerback Kane Savage has entered the transfer portal. He recorded six tackles and a fumble recovery in 22, so so some light work for the man. And former Utes and NFL offensive lineman Isaac Asiata has now joined as an assistant offensive line coach. A big in-state grab for Utah, in my opinion. But the big big news as of this week, March Madness and the recap as, as UConn takes on what which seems to be an, an easy dub, uh, an easy championship <laughs> all the way through. Like, no easy games. Or, excuse me, all easy games for them. Richie, what were your thoughts um, on the men's tournament? Maybe we'll start there, because I think the women's one's also interesting. But what are, your, what are your thoughts on the men's March Madness recap? I mean, Final Four was solid. The San Diego State-Florida Atlanta game was awesome. I think people were expecting it to kind of be a slower game, but it was fast-paced the entire game, high-scoring ended in incredible fashion with, I believe, Lamont Butler hitting that final shot. Um, Crazy shot. Like, he totally did not get to his spot. He was stumbling around a little bit. Um, The defense played it pretty much perfectly, and then he ends up just finding the right spot and just getting it off in time, and it went in, and San Diego State moved on to the finals. Um, UConn just handles business every single game. They won every single game in this tournament by double digits really well-coached team. Um, I'm impressed with some of their players. Andre Jackson Jr., their big point guard, is really impressive. Jordan Hawkins, who's probably going to be a lottery pick with the way he performed in this tournament, has a lot of potential. And, like, he's he's an incredibly fun player to watch. He His game is going to translate to the NBA perfectly because he's such a good off-ball mover. He's a really good shooter. Um, and he's an athlete. So UConn was really, really fun to watch. I mean... Unfortunately, those games probably weren't the most fun to watch that we've had in tournament history. Um, but shout out to UConn for just getting business done every single game, for showing up, for not letting anybody get back in the game. Like Miami, that Final Four game, Miami got close a couple times. And it seems like every time they got close, UConn was just able to hit a big shot and then they just pretty much stretched out the game. And um, Miami had no chance of getting back in and UConn, they just look like a dominant tournament team. Um, so it, it's, it's interesting how UConn just is really bad, like a couple years in a row and then just goes and wins the championship. And then they're bad a couple years in a row and then they go and win the championship. It's just, I, I, I want to know whatever they're having. I'll take something, but you know, yeah, the, like you mentioned the games itself, like they just weren't interesting, but I thought that there are some interesting storylines now appearing after the tournament has concluded. Like the big one right now is, is UConn, should they be considered a blue blood in today's game of basketball? Most of their success, their championships have come within the last a little bit over 20 years. And like you mentioned, they've kind of gone on and off and no really, not a lot of consistency. Although again, all of their championships have come within this, these last few decades. So it'll be interesting to see how that, comes to be but as of right now UConn is in my opinion I think of course they're the top dog because they're the defending national champions but I think the way that their program is set up they can be the next you know Duke 
type of feel in the college basketball arena. Like Duke was never really a blue blood before coach K. Um, and he really brought that program to light. And because of that, they're now considered, you know, a blue blood in some people's eyes. So I think UConn has the chance to be that. I also think another great storyline is um, Dan Hurley and that whole family where Bobby's in ASU, uh, but Bobby was a great player himself in the college era. Uh, his father was a great coach at UConn. And so for Dan to be able to win that championship, I thought that was a fantastic storyline. Um, but as you mentioned, I just think there's a ton of really good players in this tournament. And like you said, like their game can transition into the league. Um, but yeah, I just thought the games itself weren't interesting, which is sad because I feel like we talked about it. I think a few episodes back about our favorite March madness moments of all time. And a lot of those have come from final fours and championships. And I mean, hats off to those teams, because again, we saw a buzzer beater in the final four. Like we shouldn't be complaining that much, but I feel like going into the championship game, like that's the type of game we expected. Oh yeah. I totally agree. I mean, Going into the championship game, you kind of, kind of within like the first five minutes, once UConn got like their big lead, got up by 10, you just knew it was pretty much over. Um, I think, especially the way they had just played up to that point in the tournament, like no team was going to be able to catch up to them. Um, so I just think, I, I mean, they dominated the tournament. I frankly, I don't remember a four seed dominating the way they did. And horrible seeding i mean they should have been a one seed with the way they played and they were the number one team in the nation at one point this season so this isn't totally like unheralded like they're coming out of the blue they've had a really good season um they were projected to be good in the preseason but after some up and downs and just some injuries um once they got their whole squad back together won the big east and came into the tournament then you kind of just it felt like they were a little underseeded. um so I think the committee maybe got that wrong. And frankly, nobody came saw them coming out of their specific region because you had Kansas and UCLA, who by all metrics were both like top four teams. Um, so honestly, an incredible run from UConn. Props to them. Thatcher, should we talk about the women's tournament? Because that, I, th- I think that was the game of the weekend. Like of all the basketball that was played, that was the game of the weekend. Yeah, and once again, I think it's a storyline that goes around the players. Um, Caitlin Clark is obviously, I think, going to go down as one of the most historic college basketball players um, in history, mostly because of, again, she has that Steph-like impact um, in the game of basketball. The fact that she can just run down, pull up crazy shots, drop 40 points in Final Four games. like She had that effect on fans, and as such, it was driving in revenue. And I think this tournament was so big for the game of women's basketball because of that. Um, the The big argument right now, um, or that has been for a long time, is the debate about um, revenue for women's sports. And a lot of sources were posting, like right before that championship game, I think the like the least amount of money to buy like a cheap ticket for the national championship in the women's tournament was almost five hundred dollars, which is great because once again, like I felt like it was good basketball most of the way through there's not that many upsets in the women's tournament in the first few rounds, but the best of the best in women's basketball is really fun to watch. Um, it's a lot of fundamentals, but I think it's elite shooting. I think it might, in my opinion, like the shooting from the women's side of basketball is better than the men's side in college basketball. Um, the men is it's a lot more athletic um, in terms of like the, a lot bigger bodies, more work down in the paint, but in the women's basketball, they can shoot from deep. Um, very strategic in in where they shoot from on the floor, and they're really good with their footwork. And so as such, scores are higher, which obviously is more entertaining for basketball fans. I mean, you can have those 90s freaks who love to say that, you know, defense is fun to watch, but come on, everyone loves to see D3s go in. And I just thought overall the, you know, Angel Reese from LSU, like a lot of talk, but she drives the talk. Like she's some, like she's got a personality and love her or hate her. She's entertaining. She's fun to watch. And as Utes fans, you know, we got to see that in the Sweet 16. So overall, I thought that was a great tournament. And especially going down, I think, in the last three weekends, I thought it was great basketball all the way through. Shout out to LSU. But listen, especially as Utes fans, if there's anything we've learned, I think Utah basketball has a very high ceiling um, to be able to come back and make a run in next year's tournament. 
uh, right after the championship ended. ESPN put out their way too early top 25 for the 23-24 season. Utah women's basketball landed at number two in front of the defending national champions, LSU. So I think there's a lot of things to get from the tournament to, to think about it from a youth's perspective, from a general perspective, but I loved it. What were, what were your thoughts? Yeah, I think just going along with that youth's part, um, it's awesome. That's awesome for the program. They're returning a lot of their juniors and sophomores and freshmen, and they're basically going to have the exact same roster next year. And that's really important as you're building continuity, as you're building your program. Um, and so I think they're in a really good spot. And they gave LSU the best game of anybody in the tournament. LSU walked in. Again, I don't understand why they were a three seed because they were like 33 and two in the regular season. Um, and then they walked in as a three seed and you watch them and they just, they were one seed, you know, they play, they dominated the, the entire tournament. Um, and it was kind of a discredit to Utah to put them in the same bracket because I think Utah was probably one of the top four teams in the women's tournament. Um, but yeah, that it, I just think on the, the seeding with the committee says was a little wacky this year. Um, overall, just with the women's basketball, I think you made a great point. There are a lot of parallels between like the highest level of college women's basketball and the NBA, for example. Um, I think the four quarters and um, just the outside shooting, the way they play is a lot more similar to the NBA than college basketball is on any level. And frankly, that's what people want to see. There's a, there's a reason the NBA has moved in the direction it has. Um, there are reasons that the rules have changed because they've wanted to make it a better product. They've wanted to make it more entertaining. And frankly, it is more entertaining. And the league is the most talented. We've seen it right now. And I think we're seeing that that direct correlation in women's college basketball. And I wonder if like we'll see changes in men's college basketball in the next couple of years as they try to kind of capture that momentum that women's basketball has right now. Because um, I, I totally think the men's game could get to that point. I think, honestly, the transition from college to the NBA is weird. And the fact that it's two completely different games is weird. Like you had Ochai Agbaji say just a couple of weeks ago, the NBA is so much easier than college basketball because of the spacing, because of how it's played. It's just, it's easier to um, just have space in general and just to have a more entertaining product. So I wonder if that's something we do see in men's college basketball in the future. We talked about it in a previous episode about how willing the NBA has been to initiate rule changes to make the game more entertaining for its fans. I think that's been something that, NBA fans in general have enjoyed is the fact that they bring up concerns, things that could maybe be improved about the game and the NBA generally like they or they genuinely listen and then they make changes because of it. And so as such, we've been able to see, you know, foul changes um, and things of the things of that type of matter. College basketball's done a few. I feel like the last one, like big change I can remember is them extending the three point line after realizing that a majority of the shots were coming from, behind the perimeter. So they wanted to expand the line back to bring more shots from inside the paint. But the problem is, is exactly what you brought up. It's the spacing. And I don't know why men's college basketball has not brought in four quarters yet. Um, because the last thing I can remember is the NIT was a place where they would experiment with potential rule changes. For example, I think when Utah's last NIT run in 2018, that's when they initially expanded the three-point line in the NIT tournament, and they also used the four-quarter rule. And the pacing is just way better, in my opinion. Um, I thought last night, for some reason, was probably the longest college basketball game I've ever seen in my life. And it was it was weird because it really wasn't. I looked at the time, and I'm like, oh, I guess like it was fine. But it's just the pacing. And that's really, I think, a big concern right now in men's college basketball is First off, spacing, and then next off, pacing. And I think they just want you want a fast, entertaining game. Like that's what basketball should be. So hopefully, men's college basketball makes some changes. But overall, I thought this was a great month of basketball. March, I think, did its job. We were all entertained. And now we get to look forward to the NBA as the playoffs are just about to kick off in a few weeks. And we get to sit back and enjoy, uh, most likely as outside spectators. But who knows? Maybe we'll be uh, maybe we'll be in the plan. That's what we're here to talk about in this jazz segment. This is a really big week 
um, I think for a lot of fans across the league, for a lot of teams, uh, we've started to see some new teams uh, come into this potential tank race, uh, namely the Dallas Mavericks, which is funny because a few weeks ago we were talking about them being potential, you know, big time, <laughs> a big time team in the playoffs. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the Luca Kyrie uh, mashup has been exactly what Dallas has wanted um, in this, you know, last third of the season. So, Richie, in your eyes, what is this last week of the NBA regular season? How is it going to affect uh, Jazz fans, especially with Walker Kessler out? Lori Markkinen's been, you know, bouncing back and forth, and we've never seen Sexton or Clarkson. What does this last week of regular season basketball look like for Jazz fans? There are basically three storylines that I am paying attention to from a Jazz perspective. Um, the first one is the tank race between Utah and Dallas. Um, Dallas, there have been reports that they're thinking about shutting it down. They're currently 37 and 42. They've lost three in a row. They're sitting at the 11 seed. Um, their first round pick this year has a top 10 protection. So if they end up in the top 10 lottery odds and they get to keep that pick, if not, it's going to the New York Knicks. Um, it's probably in their best interest, like from a front office perspective to get that first round pick this year because there are glaring weaknesses in their team, in their roster construction that could be filled um, in this draft. Their last three games are against the Kings, the Bulls, and the Spurs. So the Kings are, will be, that game will be on the second night of a back-to-back. The Bulls are still fighting for the play-in race. They're looking at like the ninth seed, I believe, right now. The Spurs are dead in the water. Um, Utah is in a similar situation. Their last four games are against the Lakers tonight. Um, Oklahoma City, who's fighting for a play-in spot. Denver, who's gearing up for the postseason, so we might not see some of their players. But they also did beat the Warriors without Jokic, a full-strength Warriors team, basically, without Jokic um, this last week. And then the Lakers again. And the Lakers are fighting for that play-in spot as well. They're currently the seventh seed, I believe. And they're probably trying to get the sixth seed. Um, so I think this whole race between Utah and Dallas is really interesting because, quite frankly, I think Dallas is out of the play-in picture. Um, the Pelicans have been hot. OKC keeps on winning games. Um, Minnesota is hanging on to dear life. And I just think Dallas, it's probably in their best interest to pull the plug and kind of just cut your losses this season. It's so weird. The turnaround they've had, they were in the conference finals last year. They took the Warriors to six games who eventually won the championship. They almost ended the sun, this era of the Suns. I mean, that game seven was the worst game seven of any of history. Um, and they absolutely, Luka Doncic owned Chris Paul and Devin Booker that game. Luckily, the Suns got Kevin Durant, so they're kind of fine right now. But it's incredible the turnaround they've had. And I don't think Kyrie Irving is at blame at all. I think it's really just a poor, poor roster as well as certain coaching decisions that just might not have been the best decisions. And I think the Dallas Mavericks, it's probably in their best interest to get a top 10 pick. If they could land somebody um, like a Taylor Hendricks type that could come in, be a big for them, um, play good defensive minutes from the get-go, then that totally changes what they can do next year. So I think that's probably in their best interest. If they're at the 10 seed and play in the play-in tournament, they're a dangerous team to play for sure but also playing two road games, trying to get in with the way they've played the last two months. I just, I wouldn't trust that. Thatcher, what are your thoughts on this whole Dallas situation? And do you think they could out-tank Utah in these last four games? I think it's possible. Um, it's interesting because we talked about the change from last season Warriors to this season Warriors as well with technically the same roster, but obviously some changes and, as of right now, the Warriors would, you know, be, you know, technically in the playoffs. Um, but Dallas is Dallas is even more interesting. Um, obviously, you give away some of your key rotational players in that Kyrie trade, which looking back on it, it was kind of a I wouldn't say I would have given either organization like an A plus grade on the trade. Um, mostly because of the packages that come with, you know, getting Kyrie Irving, a lot of sideshow, a lot of PR stuff. Stressful for an organization. Um, on the Nets side, again, you get some great players. Um, Spencer Dinwiddie, I think like a few days before he got traded, dropped, I, I can't remember, but like almost like 40 points on the Jazz. And I was like, hey, good pickup. And 
the Nets are still maintaining a solid playoff position out East. So I, you, I think you realized how important those players were to Dallas. And I, I think last year between the Mavs and the Suns, there were a lot of similarities between those rosters. And now both of those organizations gave up those rotational players to the Nets for the Nets, two stars in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. Um, Cameron Payne was another guy that the Suns recognized as a key rotational player in shooting. Um, he always plays basically every game, every season. I think this season included, he leads the league in minutes. Um, and so that's, I think that's what really builds, uh, like a top franchise in the NBA is players who understand their roles and can fill those roles. Um, you can always talk about these superstar teams, these, you know, big three teams, but as of lately, like that just hasn't worked out. The Nets are a great example of that. They tried to create different scenarios with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, and it never worked out. But then you look at, I'm not saying that they won a championship, but I think the Suns have been a great example of consistency in the West for a few years. Same with the Nuggets, where they find rotational players that fill these holes, and then they're able to thrive because of it with a few star players. I think the Jazz's successful season in 2021 was another example. That's really what Utah's trying to build right now. They're trying to find their stars, but then also bring in rotational players. And I think what we were mentioning a few episodes ago with, or I think it was last episode, with what do these guys want to do at the end of the season? What do these Jazz players want to get out? Um, because I think right now, some of these guys may be fighting for one of those rotational spots moving forward in the Jazz's plans. Um, as of right now, the Jazz have uh, 50% odds to get the nine pick. Uh, the the ninth pick in the 2023 draft. I think that's a great position for the Jazz to be in. Um, I talked with you last night, but I, I like this has been the entire season, but I just feel happy either way that the directions has been for the Jazz, whether it was going to the playoffs or, you know, tanking or, you know, losing to get a good pick in the lottery. I just think either scenario is great for this Jazz organization. But now I'm kind of leaning towards you know, getting a better pick in the draft could be good. And I, I I say that for a few reasons. One, this draft, as we've mentioned, as everyone has mentioned, it's going to be a good draft. Um, obviously, we can't say that until 20 years down the future. Who knows? If this podcast is still alive, we can discuss and say how bad we were, we were wrong in our predictions. But also at the same time, the Jazz have a lot of assets, and they have a lot of assets in this draft. You have some other teams that are going to try and heavily rebuild to try and get back into some sort of um, competition. I think at this point, it's just sad to look at Detroit and Houston. Uh, I feel like they've been the the crap of the town for a while now. And I, I just think the Jazz have a lot of things, a lot of good things going for them. So I don't know. I don't want to say like, I don't care about a, a race for tanking or a race for the playoff right now, but I just think where the Jazz are at, they're just in a good spot no matter what happens. And I'm not expecting a lot of wins in these last four games, especially as you mentioned, you've got three of those four games are going to be against teams that are going to be heavily competing for a spot in the playoffs slash play in. So I don't know. Is it bad to say that? Like, I don't really, I, I don't really have like a, like a preference. No, I think that's totally fine. Um, and I mean, like just where we are right now, where the Jazz have positioned themselves, this year has exceeded all expectations. You found a guy that can be an anchor of like a top 10 defense for the rest of his career. You found a guy who's going to be an all-NBA guy this year and who could perennially be that kind of guy. So I just think though the way that they've been able to find Markkanen, Kessler, um, the emergence of Ochag Baji recently, Taylor Horton Tucker has shown lots of flashes. Like if Taylor Horton Tucker is coming off the bench next year, then you're going to be really confident in your bench unit. And I think those discoveries possibly outweigh what could have happened if the jazz tanked this entire season. Um, so I don't think it's wrong to think that um, as you know, it, we, the jazz can't really control too much right now, as far as like moving up or down in the lottery, I think they can really only control the games in front of them. However, I am going to be keeping an eye on things across the league, um, specifically in the Eastern Conference, because there are two teams right now that are both two games ahead of the Jazz um, in the lottery odds, and Utah could possibly jump one of these two teams. So it's the Orlando Magic and Washington Wizards. 
The Jazz are currently two games behind each. Like I said, they're both tied. Um, I don't think the Jazz have the tiebreaker versus either team. The Jazz beat Orlando twice this year, and Washington, um, that season series was split. So the Jazz probably have to lose out if they want to take move up in the odds, and then one of these two teams has to win three of their last four. Orlando's remaining schedule is difficult. They play the Cavs twice, the Nets, who are evading, hopefully trying to get out of play and reach. They're currently the sixth seed, so they're looking pretty safe. And then the Heat are the seventh seed, I believe, so they're trying to stay in the seventh seed, secure a home game, um, and get to the playoffs. And then Washington also has an interesting regular uh, rest of their season. They play the Bucks, and the Bucks the Bucks can beat anybody on any night. They can also lose by forty to the Boston Celtics, apparently. Um, but I think the Bucks will probably beat Washington. And then they play the Hawks, who are the eight seed right now, fighting for that play-in spot. Um, the Heat, who are also fighting for that play-in spot, and then the Rockets. And the Rockets game could be interesting, just because I feel like teams at the end of the season, especially in the position of the the Pistons, the Rockets, the Spurs, they tend to win some of these games um, just because other teams aren't rolling out their whole units. And then the Rockets are like, um, they're just throwing out their their whole, the whole Calvary. Um, so I think that's going to be something to keep, keep an eye on. Um, so the Jazz, like I said, they can't do much to control that pick. Um, they have the nine pick right now. They probably could move up. It's not very probable, but if certain things go right, they could move up. However, the pick I'm keeping an even closer eye on right now is that Minnesota pick. Because if the playoffs started today, that would be a lottery pick. Um, and there's, in my eyes, there's a really big difference between the 14th pick and the 15th pick because of what that 14th pick could turn into. If the Jazz got the 14th pick and say the ninth pick, then they'd have about like a 24% chance of entering the top four, which is a lot better than 20%. Um, I mean, 4%, it doesn't make that big of a difference, but that extra 4% could make it so that one of those picks uh, conveys into a lottery pick. And if that is the case, or con- conveys into a top four pick, if that is the case, then Utah would be j- drafting potentially a generational talent, somebody that could come in and change the trajectory of your franchise. And I think that's going to be really important. So looking at Minnesota's last couple of games, because there is a serious chance that they end up out of the play-in or they end up in the 9-10 game and then lose early and end up as a lottery team. Um, They play the Nets, they play the Spurs, and they play the Pelicans. The Pelicans are right in that race with them, so I expect that game to be very big. Um, The Spurs, like I said, they could maybe pull out a game. I don't think Minnesota would lose that game. Um, and then the Nets are also kind of in that play-in race on their side of the conference. So I think that's good, probably going to be a good game too. Um, Nas Reed is out. He's been a big part of Minnesota this entire year. And I don't know. The Timberwolves, like a week ago, we were talking about how they put together a really nice stretch of games. Then they lose their next three in a row. They're just, they've been wildly inconsistent this year. You don't know what to expect out of them. I think they still have a lot of upside as a team because of Anthony Edwards, because of Jaden McDaniels. I think those two guys are really good blocks to have. And then you have Conley, you have Towns, you have Gobert around that. Like there's a lot of talent there. And they figured out some things that are structurally important for their team um, and will be very important moving forward. But just where they're sitting right now, it's very possible that they end up out of the play-in and playoff race, and the Jazz have two lottery picks this year. Thatcher, how would you feel if the Jazz had two lottery picks? That's absolutely money. And like you said, it would be key for the franchise. Um, as of right now, Minnesota, um, per my sources, has a 93% chance to get the 13th pick. 9-13 and 13 sounds great to me, especially because this is a great draft, and those are two potentially generational players that can come in. And like you said, change the trajectory of the franchise. This is exactly what Utah has been looking for in the fact that we've been talking about the the rebrand. I think they're just trying to go in a completely new direction and start a new era of jazz basketball. We've had in my opinion I you know I think you can also go along with the 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 brand color changes, but there's been like four different eras of jazz basketball. And there's greats that you can associate with each era. This is the draft that will likely determine who will be the faces of this next new era. 
Markkanen will definitely be one of them. Um, I think there's no doubt about that. Kessler obviously has the potential to be that as well. These draft picks, though, I think that's what all the Jazz fans' eyes are on. These are the players that not only have proven to have the talent in the ranks below the NBA to be that type of player, but they now have the opportunity to help the Jazz become a great franchise once again. The Jazz have been a very sustainable, um, you know, they've never been a terrible franchise. I think that's the crazy thing. They've they've either been mediocre, um, good, or very good in a few years. Um, overall, they've been one of the most sustainable franchises in the entire league. And the fact that they've never had tank years or, you know, super hard rebuild years. This year is a great example of that. Um, most credible sources predicted that the Jazz would win no more than 25 games. And the Jazz were able to get past that early on in the season. Now, granted, they haven't won a lot recently. And obviously that's because of a lot of things, roster changes, um, injuries, all that type of thing. But I think this year proves that this Jazz franchise, I think, is a trustable organization to play for. And I think put all the outside talk aside of not wanting to live in Utah, whatever. But I think looking at it from a basketball perspective, if I'm going into this draft, I think Utah is a great place to land. You're playing with an all-star. You're playing with a potential great NBA defender in Walker Kessler. And a lot of guys around the league really love what Will Hardy is doing with this Jazz, uh, this jazz team. They really like his, his energy, um, the vibe he has around his players. So as such, I think if I'm going into this draft as a lottery pick, I should not be disappointed if I go to the Jazz. In fact, I don't know why people are still excited to go to Houston or to go to Detroit because I feel like you're just going there to end your career very early. And we've seen that as the average age of this Rockets team is like 15. I swear, like all these guys are just super young. I just think that the Jazz, out looking right now at the lottery odds, are one of the best teams that you could you could play with. Um, obviously, the Trailblazers could be one because you want to play with Dame. But I just think looking at the future of a steady organization that's you know looking good in this rebuild, I think the Jazz have to be one of them. And as I mentioned, I think Walker Kessler has been a big part of that in his rookie year. Um, I didn't expect him to be this good. And... All of a sudden, I'm thinking, wow, he could be an all-first NBA defensive guy like Rudy Gobert year after year, um, probably coming up in these next few years. He's already proven to be one of the best defenders in the paint this year alone as a rookie. Um, but sadly, say, because of uh, the concussion that he sustained, he's in concussion protocol, he's likely out for this season. But Richie, what, what were your thoughts on Walker Kessler's rookie season with this Jazz squad? It's been an incredible season. Um, I think the biggest thing that has stood out to me is Walker Kessler is playing winning basketball. What he's doing is sustainable, and it will translate when the Jazz have a capable roster around him and Markkanen. Um, and I just think as he continues to develop, this Jazz team is going to be in a really good spot because you have a center that plays winning basketball. His style of play is also going to translate into a playoff setting. That's very, very important. So I'm, I'm really excited about Kessler. Um this year, just from a statistical standpoint, he has had an, an incredible season. He would be first in field goal percentage had he shot two more shots. Um, he leads the league, but unfortunately, he won't qualify because he's missing those two shots to meet their 300-shot minimum threshold. Um, so, unfortunately, he won't qualify for that this year. I'm sure he'll get it in the future, though. He's fifth in offensive rebounds right now, fourth in blocks and blocks per game, second in offensive rating, in the entire NBA, second in offensive rating. That's out of 350-something players. Um, he's 19th in defensive rating, so he's having a top 20 defensive season out of any player. Um, seventh in rebounding percentage, fifth in offensive rebounding percentage, second in block percentage. The season that Walker Kessler has had has been phenomenal, and it has exceeded everybody's expectations. I mean, he was, a, I think, the 22nd pick in last year's draft, and he's coming in and he is playing debatably um, the most winning basketball out of any rookie in this class. Uh, I would exclude like I think Jalen Williams is playing winning basketball right now. And Paulo Bancaro has a very interesting role. And those are probably the two best rookies in the class as of right now. But Walker Kessler, what he's done um, and the way it's translated into wins is incredibly impressive to me. I think what's another thing that re has really stuck out to me is his in-season development. 
Um, the way, I mean, he, he came in his first game, he had a double, double, he put up 10 points, 12 rebounds against the, uh, Denver nuggets, I believe on opening night. So he came in, you knew he was a little bit better than you probably thought he was going to be, but you didn't expect him to turn into this shot blocking monster. Um, pre all-star break, he was averaging 8.2 points per game and 7.7 rebounds per game. And then post all-star break, when they really gave him some bigger responsibilities, more minutes, He's averaging 12.4 points per game and 10.8 rebounds per game. Um, the season that he's had has has really just been incredible. And you kind of start to ask yourself, like, this guy, where he currently is, is he like a top 10 center in the NBA as of right now? Is he a top five center? I don't know, Thatcher, I want to I run through an exercise with you. Um, and I'm just going to list a center. You're going to tell me, is Walker Kessler better or worse? Are you re- okay. all right? You ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right, number one, these these first couple shouldn't be too hard. Uh, Nikola Jokic, no. Okay, Joel Embiid, no. Anthony Davis, no. Demontis Sabonis, no. Bam Adebayo, no. DeAndre Ayton, no. Brooke Lopez, no. I, Nick, before 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 we yeah, move yeah. on, I a few years ago I did say DeAndre Ayton was a top five center in the league. He's still really good, but I may be crazy. Just in my opinion, just from looking at him, I feel like he may be a declining center in the league. Maybe that's from the outside things of like what we saw in the off season last season. But I think Walker Kessler definitely has the chance to at least beat DeAndre Ayton in the future. But oh yeah, I I think I think he could totally jump him. DeAndre Ayton, like, I think he's a very, very talented player, but some of the stuff he does, like, he doesn't initiate contact. He, in fact, like, he evades contact, and it's it's just really interesting watching a seven-footer with his body, with the way he's able to, frankly, de- destroy people. Um, it's interesting to see some of the decisions he makes. I do think he's a good player, though, and, and heck, he was, like, one of Phoenix's best players in their um, run to the finals a couple of years ago. So... I'm not, I wouldn't close that book yet. Yeah. Um, okay. Brooke Lopez. So we're, we're at, we're at seven. Um, okay. Number eight, Nick Claxton. Um, I'm going to say because of what they, uh, what Nick Claxton and him did one-on-one, I'm going to go with Claxton as of right now. I think Claxton had some great games against the jazz offensively, especially down against Walker Kessler in the paint. But again, I think Kessler very soon can surpass Nick. For sure. For sure. All right. Uh, Jared Allen on the Cavs. Ooh, okay. This is where it starts getting interesting. Yeah. Um, because again, Jared Allen has had stretches where I believe he is, you know, a, a top 10 big guy in the league just because of, I think he at times has great offensive ability. He's shown defensive prowess. Is it crazy? Maybe I'll say a tie right now. I'll say a tie between those two. Okay. Okay. I think that's probably fair. Um, Rudy Gobert. Uh, this season, I think Walker was better than Rudy. Yeah, I, I think most people would agree with you. Yeah, um, Robert Williams the third. Uh, I think I think Walker's better. Yeah, I would I would say Robert Williams if he was always always healthy, um, but because of just Walker Kessler's injury or size, as well as his ability to be less injury prone. I think that just puts him over the edge on Robert right. Williams the third. Yeah, um, Chris Saps Porzingis, uh, Walker Kessler's better. Love the unicorn though. Yeah, I mean Porzingis is he's he's had a career year like career highs right. in points efficiency, but it's not translating to wins. And like, yeah, the, they have a worse record than the Jazz right now, and he's supposed to be like their second best player, third best player. So I yeah, I think that's right. Fair. Yeah. Um, Miles Turner. Ooh, okay. This this is another interesting one. I think I think Walker is slightly better. Okay, okay. Um, Mitchell Robinson on the Knicks. I th- I think Walker's better. Okay. Clint Capella. Oh, now my mind immediately goes back to like 2018 when Capella <laughs> owned Gobert. Yeah, that yeah. Capella, that Capella, in my opinion, was one of the best centers of all time in the league. Um, oh man, see, are we just talking like right now? 
Yeah, just right now, this season. Okay. Like, who would you rather have in a vacuum? Yeah, I, I, I'd still, I'd still go with Walker. But okay. again, Clint has had, Clint has had a great career. Jakob Pertl. Ooh. Okay. Um, I think Jakob has right now. I think he has a uh, better offense. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I like how he controls the ball on the offensive side defense. He's shown times where he can, he can play great down along the paint, but I feel like Walker's better on the defensive end. Hmm. Unfortunately, Jakob Pertl has been postered by John Morant more times than, uh, Walker yes. will ever be postered right. by John Morant. So, th- so I think, so it's like, I got something <laughs> that, that is. Yeah. So like, I will, I will say Walker's better overall because i think walker's offensive ability can get better but as of right now i think Jakob has some of the best offensive capabilities out of any big man in the league right now but yeah oh I yeah think i think like his dribble handoffs i mean he doesn't shoot a lot and that's fine but right the way he's still able to be really effective the raptors have been incredibly better with Jakob purdle like once yeah. they acquired him and i yeah. think that speaks to purdle's like he's probably pretty underrated right um for a second um right. while he was playing on the spurs yeah, All right. I'll go with Walker, Mo- though. Okay. Moving on, Jonas Valanciunas. I'll go with I'll go with Walker. I mean, Jonas has his moments. He's got a big body. I think he has I think he has some of the best uh athleticism at times down low in the paint, but I, I gotta go with Walker. I think he's had a better season. Dude, if if Valanciunas three point shot is going like that game he went like eight of eight against the Warriors last year, yeah, then it's pretty hard to take any center over him, but right, but th- that's not a consistent part of his game. Um, Avicha Zubac. Uh, I'm gonna go with Walker. Okay, Nikola Vucevic. Ooh. Okay. I-, I think I'm gonna go with. Uh, I think I'm gonna go with Vucevic on this one. Okay. Okay. Um, Wendell Carter Jr. Magic center. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Walker. Okay. Alperin Sengun. I'm going to go with Walker. Yusuf Nurkic. Mm. I'll go with Walker. I think I like, if, I like I think I if the like Trailblazers a... had Kessler instead of Nurkic, they'd be a playoff team right now. Yes. Again, Nurkic has had weird moments in his career where he's he likes to shoot from the perimeter, but I just, yeah, more than not, he's nothing's going down. So, yeah. And he doesn't really have a good defense in my opinion. Okay. I'll run through these last couple really fast. Dwight Powell, yeah. uh, Walker, Kessler, Steven Adams, Walker, Kessler, Jalen Williams, Walker, Kessler, Zach Collins. Oh, Walker, Kessler, hundred percent. Mark Williams on the Hornets. Walker, Kessler. James Wiseman on the Pistons. Walker Kessler. Kevon Looney. Yeah, Walker Kessler. I just, I think it's interesting. Okay, so you would have him about right at the borderline top 10 center mark, which I think is an interesting place to have him. I don't know if that would be the consensus around the NBA, um, but I think that's probably speaking more to just his his lack of a body of work, you know, if that makes sense. Like, I just right. think he needs to probably prove some stuff in the playoff playoff setting um, and then put together like a couple of good seasons before you're really able to have that conversation. But the trajectory Kessler is on right now, just as a big, as a defender, as well as on the offensive side, he is definitely in that top 10 center conversation. And I think that's really important. Having a good defensive center is so crucial when you're playing in a playoff setting. Um, When you, are able to punish guys um, that teams that go small ball. We have been on the front line of that exact thing. And I think Kessler won't be able to get schemed out of games the way Rudy Gobert was able to get schemed out of games. Um, Kessler is able to just kind of stay as a force in, in an offensive game. He doesn't necessarily need the ball to be fed to him. um, Doesn't need to get the ball in the post, but I think that's something he could add to his game. And Last week we saw it against the Celtics. Um, it was a game in which he had like four dribble handoffs, each of which led to three pointers. And I think dribble handoffs just as a center, um, we're seeing Jokic do a ton of that. We're seeing Sabonis do that more than anybody else in the NBA right now. And it's a really good and powerful way to create 
offense for your team, especially a team like the Jazz, because in the future, this Jazz team is going to be cutting a lot to the basket. They're going to be generating looks like that. You're going to have Markkinen coming around those screens, those dribble handoffs. You're going to have Agbaji coming around those dribble handoffs. And I think Walker Kessler being the hub of that offense would totally change just how people view him. So I think the top 10 center right now, while it may be a little bit premature, I think that's definitely on the right track. And Walker Kessler absolutely is going to be that guy. Yeah, that's a prediction I think we can get right, is that he will be a top 10 center. <laughs> we'll, we'll get a prediction right. We'll, we'll um, have to run through this exercise again next year because I think yeah, it's that... going to be a different conversation than right now. Right. I 100% agree. And immediately when you were bringing up those other centers around the league, my thoughts are either going to immediately going to one of their best games that they've had or looking at their career as a whole. But especially like this season, Walker Kessler has had, like you said, like on the verge of a top 10 center type of season in the NBA. And that's crazy to think because as jazz fans, we've been used to having a, you know, a top five center in the league, uh, pretty consensus by most people around uh, the NBA, like Rudy Gobert was a dominating force on the defensive side of the ball. There's no question about that, but we saw, especially in these last few years, how easy it was to be able to scheme around Gobert, make him a part of your plans in the playoffs and eliminate him very quickly. And that forced Donovan and company to basically make up for what they were lacking on both the offensive side and the defensive side. I don't, I think Walker can be, I, the, the few centers that I paused on, was mainly because of their offensive offensive ability, mm-hmm. and I think Walker has has the potential to have a great shot. I think his form is good, uh, which is crazy to say for a center. <laughs> I I like his I like his form. Um, the shots, the long shots that he decides to take, are very meticulous. They're well thought out, which I think is great for a center. Um, I think a really a big improvement that any center can make is learning how to make free throws. Uh, Joel mm-hmm. Embiid. Um, Nikola Jokic, right? The best of the best. They do well because not only do they draw fouls, but then they convert at the charity stripe. And that's, they're able to drive up their points per game. I think that's really the next step for walkers. We, I mean, we're used to it, especially with Rudy, but drive up the free throw percentage numbers that will drive up his points per game. And then I think once he develops that shot, I think like, again, he'll develop his defense. Like he still can. I'm not saying he's, he's far from perfect on the defensive side, but he's great. Like he's good. Um, so yeah, I, I think next year he, we could definitely be saying that Walker Custer is already a top 10 center in the league. It was crazy. Cause I was like, am I a jazz Homer just saying that Walker's better than all those guys? But like, statistically <laughs> speaking, like you could say he's on the verge of a top 10 season, but kind of crazy, but that's cool. Um, because especially going into this 2023 season, uh, Walker, I felt like was a leftover haul in the trade, uh, between Minnesota. I didn't expect this to be what Utah got at all. But I'm glad that we did. I think it's great that Danny Ainge saw the potential in Walker and it worked out. Um, yeah, it worked out really well. Yeah. So transitioning over to Utah football, um, obviously it's off season, but it's spring ball. And so that means we can talk about it because this is when, you know, we'll start to see some competition between uh, positions. We'll start to see maybe some newcomers that are starting to perform very well. Usually, as Utah fans, Whittingham only talks about certain guys that are really performing well. And if he says your name, that means he probably really likes you. Um, I think one that comes to mind was Nate Ritchie from 2020. Um, The fact that he was talking about this freshman so much meant that he was really good. And Ritchie did have a good year. Um, This season, he's obviously everyone's looking at this quarterback battle, Um, not for the number one spot. We know that's going to rising but it's for the number two spot between um, Nate Johnson and Brandon Rose. Um, one of the interviews last week, um, it was interesting because as he was mentioning the quarterback competition, he only mentioned Nate by his first name. He called him Nate, but then he mentioned Brandon. He called him Rose. And I thought I was like, maybe I'm looking too deep into this as like a psychologist type of feel. But I was like, if someone's going off of a first name basis, someone's going off of a last feel like maybe they kind of already know who's leading in that quarterback race or who has a jump ahead. And I think most people want it to be Nate, but Brandon Rose has shown some great flashes already in the spring ball camp. And I think looking ahead to the scrimmage in a few weeks, 
we can finally start to see maybe what Brendan looks like under center. Richie, what are your thoughts on this quarterback race between Nate Johnson and Brandon Rose and what kind of futures we're looking at for both of those players, depending on how this shakes up? I believe Josh Newman of the Salt Lake Tribune said that Rose was kind of leading the race right now. And as soon as I heard that, my immediate thought was, is Nate Johnson going to have a Jaquindon Jackson type of transformation? Um, Jaquindon was stuck at QB2, QB3 for like a couple of years before they finally made the change. And Nate Johnson, while he's not like the exact beefy, strong athlete that Jaquindon Jackson is, he is an incredibly impressive athlete. And I think um, some of that would translate to other positions. Um, his size obviously would be a question. Like he probably would not be a running back. I think that's just the truth. But he could definitely play um, a receiving type role or playing on the defensive end. So those were just kind of like my first initial thoughts. I think it's way too early in the process to be thinking like that. Um, there's still a lot of spring ball left to be played. There's a uh, fall camp. You got to get through just a lot of football left to be played. And we even saw it like Nate Johnson, he could say as quarterback and he could be the guy in certain situations. Um, when you put him in against uh, man, we put him in a couple times in um, some of those games late in the season. And just like right on the goal line, he creates just this terrorizing presence because of his speed on the outside and if you're able to send blocks on the outside then he's able to get a touchdown basically every time and i think having that kind of a weapon having that kind of versatility on your roster probably is a really good problem to have um the fact that brandon rose is like playing himself into this is also really encouraging um because he wasn't like he's not the highest rated quarterback on the roster um this will be i believe his uh, second year with Utah. Um, I think he redshirted last year. Am I right? Um, and yeah, he, I mean, he like, redshirted last year. Okay. Yeah. He, I mean, he's like, not like your most heralded recruit. I mean, he was recruited by us, Northwestern, Arizona state, Boise state, Colorado, Kansas, and Nevada. None of, none of those are like considered football powerhouses. So I think, um, if he is showing off to be this guy, then it's probably a really good sign of just like how deep your quarterback room is. Um, and maybe it's just fuel for Nate Johnson to get even better. We know the type of athlete he can be. We know the kind of guy that he can be on his feet. And if this is what um, ends up helping him just round out as a player, as a quarterback, um, I think that that would be really big for Utah's trajectory. Ultimately, I don't know like how much this QB, QB2 race is going to be important for this next season, but history suggests that at one point or another, Utah's going to need their second quarterback. They're going to need a QB2, um, just especially with Cam Rising's injury history. And so maybe this is a little more important than I'm giving it credit for, um, but definitely a situation to keep an eye on. And, and I'm excited to see it in action in spring ball. Yeah, this is the position battle that I think most Utah fans are looking at. And Brandon Rose is following the same trajectory that Cam Rising did and the fact that he played with the scout team his first year with Utah. And he was able to get a sense of the offense and also create chemistry with his teammates. Rising was able to play against some... He was, I think why Rising was able to be so good coming right off of the scout team was he's playing Utah's starting defense but then he's also developing relationships with those receivers on the scout team that are now starting um, for Utah. And so right off the bat, as soon as he goes into that starting role, he already knows how to play the game and it's worked out well for him. Brandon Rose is kind of following that same trajectory. And while he wasn't highly touted out of high school for a lot of the big programs, he's shown now that like, Hey, he can play with these guys. And he's already said that the game has slowed down for him a lot more than it was last year. And I think you have to attribute that to his reps with the scout team. Nate Johnson um, can definitely follow in the footsteps of previous former quarterbacks who transitioned into other roles. Um, Chase Hansen was a great, uh, is a great example of that move from quarterback to safety slash linebacker. Um, I mean, the guy did everything on Utah's defense for a few years um, because of his athleticism um, kind of had that Taysom um, Hill type of build. Um, then you look back and, um, 
can't believe I got I got names blanking in my mind. But Utah has had history. Oh, Britton Covey, duh. Britton Covey, quarterback, high school, moved to slot receiver, freshman year, absolutely balls out, becomes an All-American. Did you have another name you were going to say? That was the one I was going to throw out there. Yeah, I was like, I know it's one that should be obvious, but it was it was couldn't come to mind. But Utah is really good at changing people's position for a specific reason because they recognize certain uh, skill sets that the players have. I don't think Utah is just like, hey, uh, you're not really going to get the starting position, so let's just move you to another one and try out there. Like, no, they'll they'll move you because they'll see something in you that where they believe you'll have success. Nate Johnson can't be that type of player. Again, like you said, it's too early to talk about this, but I think first off, Nate Johnson can be a great punt returner, kick returner. If you have 10, 400 meter speed, you have to use that in some type of way. And if it's not running back, I think it has to be something where you can put the ball in his hands and take advantage of it. Because in my mind, the way he's built body wise and skill wise, I think you'd move him to the defensive side. I think he could be a really good cornerback. Um, he could be a really good safety somewhere out in the backfield um, because you have the speed to keep up with D1 receivers. And as such, you can play really well out there. But in my opinion, I don't think you can waste that type of speed. And so as such, I believe you should put him in a punt returning, kick returning type of role where he can use it to his advantage with the ball in his hands to score for the Utes. We saw as a freshman, an 18-year-old, they would run basically, you know, run packages for Nate where literally you can see it right from the get-go. You know what's going to happen. They have the outside defenders coming towards him and he can literally just outrun them to the outside, score a touchdown from 15 yards out. Like you just have to use that in some type of way. And I think Utah will recognize that. I think the coaching staff will see that. And so as such, they'll take advantage. But I would not be surprised if if Johnson does experience some form of a position change depending on how this quarterback battle goes. But as, mu- as comfortable as we are with Rising being QB1, I think this season at one point or another, QB2, whoever it is, is going to have to step up and win some big moments for the squad. And that could potentially be game one against the Florida Gators. So... I think while you may think, well, you know, it's not that interesting because it's a quarterback two race. Like, I still think that this is a a position battle that will determine the success of Utah's upcoming season. Maybe that's too much for me to say, but I I don't know. I think it's really important. Oh, I I absolutely agree. I think it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. And I'm really excited for the spring game to like see these two in action, um, see what they're doing and hopefully get get a better read on the situation. Um, should we move into our draft segment? Let's do it. Okay, Richie, remind our listeners who we will be drafting, and who who goes first this week? Uh, I think I, I think I got the first pick this week. Okay, well then, introduce us once again to our draft segment, and then take us away. Yeah, all right. For our draft segment this week, we are going to be drafting our top five office characters. This is just based on personal likes, personal taste, um, who we think is the funniest, who we would want on our basketball team. Who would want in a fight? You know, just there's no criteria, but there's all this criteria at the same time. You can't put a real name on it, but you know it when you see it. Um, so with my first pick, I feel like I feel like this is going to be a strong pick. Um, I'm taking Dwight Schrute, number one. I mean, he's the guy from day one that gets to the end. You see his journey, you see his per- player progression. Um, there's just a lot to like in the guy. And honestly, like, the way he just evolves as a character and the way he's still likable, like until the very end, I think that does wonders for just how I feel about him. So I'm taking him number one. That's a solid pick. Um, for nine, num- for my number one, I'm going to go with uh, the face of the league uh, toxic and his first few seasons with the franchise, I feel like, but he evolved into a team player. And when we saw him leave the organization, you could just see there was a little bit of a dip in uh, his success. Um, so I'm going to go with Michael Scott for my number mm. one pick. Um, I know it's a it's a classic, but you just have to recognize talent when you see it, and that's why I'm going with the boss. I love it. Speaking of talent, I'm probably going to take the most talented music, musician on the show, Creed Bratton. Uh, that last song in the finale... It does it for me every time. Um, so I'm taking Creed Bratton number two. Also, he just has the best moments, I feel like. It, between him and Kevin, they're just the most hilarious moments happen between those two guys. So I'm taking Creed Bratton number two. 
that that was going to be my number two. I know he's he is a favorite of both of ours. Creed, I think his <laughs> he should have been used more. It's sad because they have those new super fan episodes now. Yeah, um, yeah. and there's a lot more Creed, and I'm sad because, dude, his his like one liners are some of the best moments of each episode, which is sad. But swing low, sweet chariots. <laughs> swing low, sweet chariots. Oh, fantastic. Um. Okay, so this two is going to be hard. You can obviously go with like the classics, but as you mentioned, I think Kevin Malone is going to be my number two because mm-hmm. I like both of his characters. He here's the thing: he changed his game about halfway through. Like the first, like you know, three seasons, he was you know kind of chill and he had some funny one-liners about how depressing his life was. But then they kind of turned him into like the class clown, stupid, doesn't really know what he's doing, um, low IQ type of guy. And it was still funny to me. So I'm going to go with Kevin Malone because he evolved his game to change with the times and he succeeded at doing it. I respect it. I, as I'm going through this exercise, I kind of realize I just don't like a lot of these characters. Like I feel like as I've gotten older, I've just, I, especially the staple characters, like I, I'm not going to pick Jim and Pam just out of principle. Like I just don't like, I don't like them, you know? Um, but as I'm going through like a character list, one one guy's really sticking out to me, and that's Daryl Philbin. I I I love Daryl. I th- I think Daryl is solid throughout the show. Uh, definitely has some weird moments, but he 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 cracks me up every time. Plus, I think he'd just be really good on my basketball team. So I'm taking Daryl Philbin number three. Yeah, Daryl had flashes in that basketball episode season one. So why wouldn't? He? <laughs> um, exactly. Exactly. Obviously, they painted Jim as the hero. I, I'm sure he's good at basketball, but I agree with you. I'm going to go with, again, off-brand characters, as you may say. I'm going to go with a guy that made me laugh more than most of the main characters on the show, and that's D'Angelo Derimetrius Vickers. <laughs> um, it's, it's hard to transition from an all-star player to not having him, and I think The Office did such a good job in those three episodes with that with Will Ferrell coming in. Um Honestly, while not having Michael Scott was terrible, D'Angelo, in my opinion, was just as funny, if not more at times, than Michael Scott in those few episodes. So I'm going to go with D'Angelo, Derimetrius Vickers. I love the scene in the bar where they meet up and figure out that they were supposed to meet each other. It's, it's just it's, hey, that's it, a great scene. And he's a big basketball guru. He's got a mini basketball hoop, and he he ends up, you know, basically losing his life over trying to do the Michael Jordan free throw dunk. So, that's right, how can I not take right. him? Um. All right, my fourth pick. This is kind of a borderline on the edge pick, but I love this character. I'm taking David Wallace number four. I feel like he comes in and he's just like he's consistent. Um. He has some like really good moments, especially like once he gets fired and then Michael goes to his house. I think that episode just cracks me up every time, just like him going through his midlife crisis. And then he eventually comes back and pretty much saves the day um, for Saber and Dunder Mifflin. So I'm taking David Wallace number four. That's a that's a solid pick. Um, this one might be a little controversial, maybe just because of uh, who he is as as a person. But I'm going to go with Robert California at the four. <laughs> again Dang, man it's it's because of the lack of michael scott you have to come up with a character that keeps people interested robert california had some moments where you were just glued to the screen either out of disgust or laughter or just like cringe like he had it all and as such i think i want him on my squad i respect that I, he does have some incredible lines like that part where Andy calls him and then his retort to Andy, it's incredible. The, the, like j- he's a genius. Um, my fifth pick, I'm going to take the other genius from the show. I'm taking Mo Schrute. Um, and I just feel like the, the combination of Mo's and Dwight will be really, really strong. Also just every scene Moses in cracks me up. I think he's one of the fan- funniest characters and just has like the funniest bits. Also the fact that, the actor is like a writer on this show cracks me up too. Um, but yeah, I'm taking Moshu at number five. Yeah. It's it. once you look at like who actually like wrote the show, you're like, Oh my gosh. Like I know these guys really weird <laughs> to see. Um, okay. This may be, this may be maybe another, another hot take, but I'm going to go with Hank from downstairs, mm. the security guard, mm. rest in peace to the legend. 
Um, he just has a few a few short moments where you're just thankful for his sarcasm. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I was like laughing out loud at his moments, but I always just felt comfortable, you know, with Hank. So I'm yeah. gonna go with him at the five. Yeah. No, he he definitely does his job as a security guard and like making you feel safe. So yeah, I, I even as a, that pick, even as a viewer, you know, you just you understand him, especially when they make him come back after being in the in the tub to come and get them out <laughs> of the lobby. You feel for him, you know. You, you he makes you feel things on a, on a human level. I love it. Yeah, hundred percent. All right. Do you, have, do you have an honorable mention? Oh, okay. Honorable mention. I think I'm gonna have to give it to. Uh, for a moment there, I almost said uh, Idris Elba's character, but no, I don't want to give it to him. Props, um, props. What was it? yeah, Charles Minor. Yeah, no, I don't like that guy. Uh, okay, off the top. Let's see. Hang on, I'm just gonna run through this list real quick. You know what? I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with Kelly Kapoor. I think okay. she's got some funny moments as well. Uh, the low IQ. I don't know. Maybe that just is funnier for me, those types of jokes, but I'll go with Kelly as my honorable mention. I like it. Uh, my honorable mention is Gabe Lewis. Gabe, Gabe, Susan Lewis. <laughs> I just, it's his build for me that cracks me up. And, and then the way that they all just roast him, like after he's done with like being kind of the boss guy, um, once he's put into his place, it, it, it's hilarious to me. I love how so. you played the Gabe card, man. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Well, thank you all for tuning into this week's episode. Be sure to tune in weekly 